The last session we had together was two weeks ago, and we asked ourselves, what is the church? What, what is it? And that's kind of the overall theme of, the, of this whole, uh, whole series. And we saw that by definition, this is the definition we, we, what I gave you, was the church is those people who have been called out by God's grace who regularly gather together where there are members who practice the ordinances and together by God's grace glorify him. Right? So that's underneath it all. This is the foundation, definition-wise, biblically, of what the church is. And I expressed to you a few of my uh, hopes in this little series that we're going to be doing through August. And, but I want to reiterate one of them, as I've already said, is that I would, my hope is, my overall hope, is that we would become free from the tyranny of human opinion, where we see the scriptures clearly and speak sufficiently on what is the church. And today, the next question that we're going to be addressing, and I hope, again, frees us from the human tyranny of what these things are, and that is, who is the church? Let's get started. Third century theologian Augustine was the first to come up with the idea or principle of the invisible church and visible church. The visible church is what can be clearly seen. It's those who show up Sunday mornings, membership roles. It's not buildings, but it's members. It's those who are clearly a part of the church, those who have a profession of faith. This morning, we are the visible church. You drive down the road, visibly, you look in the window, you see a group of people, i.e., that is a church. Well, not just a group of people, but defined in the definition I already gave you. So we are the visible church. The invisible church, according to Augustine, are all true believers. This means all of the elect. All true believers, they are the elect, and all the elect that will come to God, that God will call to himself. This is the invisible church. There are people around us that although invisible to us, they are very much visible to God, who also might be of the elect and will be saved. Let me illustrate those two, the visible and the invisible. Think of the invisible church, the visible church as a circle, and then another, the invisible church as another circle, and those circles come together. And there's this overlapping part of the two circles. One is the visible, one is the invisible. And there are those in this middle who are part of the elect that are part of the visible church that can be seen and those who are unseen. You remember the parable of the wheat and the tares. There are those who appear to be a part of the visible church, 
who have false confessions or false professions of, of faith, but yet will not endure. The church is not God. It's members. We are not God. And therefore, we cannot see into the depths of the hearts of every man, every woman, to determine whether that person for sure is certainly in Christ or not. What is invisible to me, though, is very much visible to God. So that's Augustine's form of the visible and invisible church. And, but Calvin took the idea of the visible and invisible church, and he took it a little bit further, and he's saying, hey, this isn't some pie-in-the-sky idea. This isn't some kind of twilight zone idea. But he says the principal task of the church the invisible church, those who are also a part of the visible church, are to make what is invisible more visible. Does that make sense? Calvin says that the, the job of the church, those who are in Christ, the elect of God, and those who are a part of the visible church, their principal task is to make what is invisible more visible. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, Calvin points to Acts 1.8, and he says how they're called, the disciples of Christ are called to be witnesses, to be witnesses of Christ. Now, when we think of a witness, we think about someone who is telling another person about Jesus. But the purpose of a witness is to make something known, to reveal that is hidden. We are showing someone what was hidden to them. We're showing them Christ. So through evangelism, through the proclamation of the gospel, imaging the glory of Christ by demonstrating our distinctiveness and love and justice and mercy, we are proclaiming the gospel to the world. And in doing so, we are revealing what is hidden. Now, but through another way, though, we also reveal what is hidden, what is invisible, through meaningful biblical church membership. Because this is how we show the world who actually represents him. Who is in the kingdom and who is not? The church has the authority to identify and preserve the gospel message. What the truth is about Jesus. It has the authority and responsibility to identify who belongs to the community of believers. Our membership role at Sovereign Grace Church is to show Statesboro and Bullock County and the world that these people, by the authority given to us by Jesus Christ, represent him. So biblical church membership, and we're also going to talk about church discipline, is making the invisible church more visible. 
in the Bible, there has always been a bright line of distinction between God's people and everyone else. That's why we read Deuteronomy chapter 7 this morning. God has been marking off for himself a people. Yet even before that, we can see that God was doing everything to show that this is his people. From the very beginning, you can see who represents him and who doesn't. Adam and Eve, placing him in his garden. My people, in my place. When Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against God, what did God do? God casted them, cast them out of the garden. And God sent a perimeter around the garden, gardening, gardening it with angels so that no one could enter. And this means that God is showing us that sinners are excluded from what is holy. In Genesis chapter 12, God called out Abraham and covenanted with him. In chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 7, it says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God is setting a land for his people, marking off, this is my people. So what God is telling Abraham is this, is that there will be two kinds of people in this world. There will be those who are abiding in his presence, and then everyone else. God is marking off his people. And to make that spiritual reality very real to Abraham, God gave Abraham a sign. Not the best gift in the world to receive, but the act of circumcision. Ouch. And same goes for any foreigner that wanted to join the people. Be circumcised and come. Be purified and come. Circumcision was the entryway of inclusion into this new people. A sign to them of membership. And all the Israelites if they had refused circumcision, did God say, okay, that's all right? No. They were cast out. This was a physical line of distinction that proved a spiritual separation. If you've ever read through, through Leviticus and unpacked it, it's all about Israel. Israel was to be distinct. It was all about God showing, this is how you are to be my people. This is how you are to be distinct from the highest of priests to the lowliest of persons in Israel. This is how you are to be different in every way in food, drink, dress, clothing, 
worship, marriage, etc., you would be distinct and holy and marked off because I am holy. God is holy. These were marks of those who were to be God's people. And then there's everyone else. Moses and Joshua constantly reminded the people to be pure and to be separate. And if, as they would, they would live in the promised land given to them by God. As you live in the physical boundaries of the land, you must also live in the physical boundaries of the covenants. Israel failed over and over, though, didn't they? Idolatry, intermarriage, turned them into what? Just another group of people who was not distinct, who was not holy, who was not pure as God had called them to be. They looked, they smelled, they acted, they talked, just like the nations. And after hundreds of years, God exiled them out of the land. And why? And why? Since there wasn't any spiritual borders between them, why should God give them physical borders? And God removed those physical borders. Now when we get to the New Testament, we see something new. Although told to us from the old, there is this new covenant that would be established. And we know and we enjoy this new covenant established in and through Christ, so that now Jews and Gentiles, right? Jews and everybody else now can be brought in to this new people called the church, the ecclesia, the called out. This new people, though, would be brought in no longer by circumcision, no longer by works, no longer by ethnicity, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. And what would be the sign of this new covenant? We're good Baptists. Baptism. Baptism would be this new sign of, of us coming into the new covenant. It's a new line of demarcation that now you identify with Christ and that you are in union with Christ. But not only that, but you are in union and identify with this unique, distinct, separate people. Here's the point. Just like before, all the way back in the garden, God is still making a distinction of who is in and who is not. Who is in Christ and who is outside of Christ? It's when we blur those lines when things go haywire. Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 10 when he says, His sheep come into the pen. Those sheep know his 
voice and they come in and they follow him. And those who don't know his voice, they don't come in. They don't follow him. They stay out. Even at the very end of time and the consummation of all humanity, we will see this distinction continue of who is in and who is not. Jesus told about the separation of the sheep from the goats. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 27 says, But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I know this sounds harsh to the modern mind. Because think about what we have just said. There are people that God draws in to be his people, and there are those that he does not. And the Bible is very clear that there is an exclusiveness to God's people, to his church. We're not elitists. You see, everyone is welcome. Because the gospel is for everyone. And everyone who repents of their sins and puts their faith in the work of Christ will there be, thereby will be welcomed into this new people. We are not a higher class. We are not a better race. We are not more powerful, nor do we claim to be the only wise. But God's people, are only those who have put their faith in the work of Jesus Christ. The pattern of inclusion and exclusion is throughout the Bible. God's people are to be clearly marked off. And this thread flows throughout Scripture, and that helps us understand the necessity as the church to maintain biblical church membership and practice church discipline accordingly. Because this is how we make the invisible more visible. So I want to answer, ask, and answer four questions. What is church membership and discipline? Is it in the Bible? I think you know the answer to that question because we wouldn't even be talking about it if it was. Why is it important and what to do about it? So number one, what is church discipline? Church membership is the relationship between a local church and an individual Christian who has been affirmed by the church and has therefore submitted themselves under the oversight of the church for their discipleship, which now they themselves participate in the care and the oversight of the rest of the church as well. Church membership is the affirmation and the declaration of citizenship in the kingdom of God. This is what makes church membership different 
from any other relationship that we may have, even with other Christians. I'm sure that, that all of you have several Christian friends or a few Christian friends and good, faithful brothers in Christ that you enjoy fellowshipping with, you enjoy being with, have good food and good drink and great discussions with them. You love them, you care for them, and you'll do whatever you have to to help them if they were in need. However, we do not owe them the same kind of oversight and care as we would with each other. And why? Because here... We are in membership with others of sovereign grace. Between us, there is a covenanted connection, and there's this authority and oversight that we practice over one another, given to the church, the people, by Jesus, to watch over one another's souls. Now, practically speaking, as a church member, this is how we identify ourselves as one of God's people. When I meet other Christians and people who tell me they're, they're Christians, one of my first questions that I ask them is, where are you a church member? Where is your membership? And I ask this question because remember, the authority to identify one as a Christian given by Jesus is not to the individual Christian, but to the church. According to Matthew 18, Jesus tells the church in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. This means it is only the church, verse 8, 17 is talking to the church. This means that it's only to church that binds and loosens, means it recognizes and affirms someone is a Christian. The church doesn't make Christians. We don't make Christians. We don't sprinkle magic fairy dust or holy water or you dance a dance and we dip you in some water and then that's what makes you a Christian. We don't make Christians. God makes Christians through the regeneration of his Holy Spirit by faith in Christ. And that's all. But as a church, we come and we recognize the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, and we give a stamp that says, yes, they are a Christian. Remember, I'm reading, if you've read the church membership book, the little small blue book, there's a great illustration about how the church is an embassy in a foreign land. When citizens need a passport, and you live overseas, and you need a passport, you go to the embassy of your, of your country. And the embassy takes all of your documentation that you have, and, and they look at that person, and, and they take the documents, and then they determine to themselves and to the, the appropriate ways, is this person a citizen, or, or are they not? And if they are a citizen, what do they do? They issue you a passport. The embassy doesn't make citizens, does it? But they determine and they recognize by the proper documentation and by giving the passport that they are citizens. And that's the role of the church. We don't make citizens of heaven, but we recognize publicly and to the world who is and who is not a Christian. 
So when you join a church, that's when you are being issued these papers, this passport of your citizenship. So membership is you connecting with the local church and them connecting with you and declaring that you are follower of Christ. Church discipline is a bit different. Church discipline comes in two different ways. There's formative discipline, which is done through teaching and preaching, and that forms us and that shapes the church to be God people. That's what we are doing now. God's word is having a forming effect and teaching and correcting and building up of us so that we would be informed to be the church that walks in holiness. But then there is corrective discipline. Again, back to Matthew 18. Read with me in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. It says, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. Amen. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to a group of friends. It could be your friends, but to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they, shall ask, what they ask, it will be done for them by my, Father, by my Father in heaven, for whom two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. If a brother or sister sins against you or sins against us, and if we see another brother who is living in unrepentant sin, then we are to confront them. We are to go to them and say, Brother, I see this in your life, or you've offended me in this particular way, or sister. And we do this, as Jesus says, in the steps, one-on-one. -on -one. And, and this distinctly, I think what Jesus is saying here, particularly in this first step is, is what happens in each of our church membership relationships because we're sinners and we're going to sin and we're going to sometimes sin openly and sometimes we're going to sin against each other and hopefully we are growing together in such a way that we come to one another in love in this way that we're able to lovingly correct warn and exhort and encourage and pray for one another in these ways. That this is how our relationships are deepening distinctly. But Jesus goes on and says, but what if there's no repentance? Well, step two is to bring another brother or another sister or two or two, one or two to go with you. And so now there's a group of consensus that goes to correct and to bring restoration, and again, if they still refuse to repent, Jesus says, take what was informal and now make it formal. Go to the church. Go to the church. Don't make the group bigger, but take it to the church. 
Don't get a bunch of friends. Take it to the church. And yet still, what is the hope even in this third point? The point is for restoration. The point is we're hoping for repentance. Jesus is saying we hope by this stern warning by the church that is binding and loosening is saying to this brother or sister saying, listen, you are in serious danger. Listen to the body of Christ as you are in danger. Repent of your sin. And we pray that they would repent and be restored. And I love what verse 20 says. For two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That means Christ is with his church when we are doing this. That's because it hurts. It's hard. It's not fun. It's what we want to run from. Jesus says, I'm with you in the purification of my church and in his people. I am with you. And if they are still unrepentant, then you are to remove them. You are to remove them, revoke them of their membership. And when we think of church discipline, this is primarily what we think about, or at least culturally is thought about. Just kicking people out. But that's not at all what we have just described. We have described a long, loving, arduous process that will come at the sacrifice of many brothers and sisters. Because it's hard to do this. Church discipline is so much more. The practice of church discipline is when the whole body practices oversight to protect the gospel message and love that person. And this only can happen through church membership. This is what protects the church. It protects the believer. It protects the person and protects the name of Christ. Are these things in the Bible? We've already said these, yes. But I have to make a confession. If you go to your Bible app and you search church membership in the Bible, you will never find those two words together. You'll never see Paul say, you need to join your local church or anywhere else. That explicit language is not there. But the implication of membership is all throughout the New Testament. And as we've already said, its roots are in the Old Testament. Because there's a clear, the clear distinction between God's people and who's not God's people. Again, back in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, this form of discipline is to be worked out where? In the church. Jesus is explicitly talking about the church, that they are to know who is in and who is not. Who do you go and tell if there is no clear markings of who is the church or not? How do you remove someone from something that they are not a part of in the first place? And the answer is, you can't. 
This is what Jesus is assuming, that we would know very clearly who is in and who is not. In Acts chapter 2, the church began to, began to grow from Acts chapter 2 by the coming of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches the gospel and tells them to repent and to believe and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. What is the sign that Peter gives them? To repent and to be baptized. This is the sign, the entrance into the kingdom of God. Down in verse 41, later he confirms that they believed and they received the word and then they were baptized. In fact, he gives us a number, 3,000 people. How in the world did they know it was 3,000? How would you know if something was 3,000? One, two, three, count. They counted them. Because churches know who are their members. In Acts chapter 4, they counted again. Because now they, they grew up to over 5,000 men. They counted again. Let me show you another angle of the necessity of church membership and where we see it in Scripture. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. So practically speaking... How does that make any sense for a person to call themselves a Christian and yet has not submitted themselves to nobody? Doesn't make sense. How do you submit and obey if there is no such thing as clear church membership? The Bible always assumes a Christian will be connected to the local church to be marked off and to be separate. Well, what about church discipline? Is it in the Bible? Yeah, that's an easy one, right? I mean, that's Mark, that's Matthew chapter 18. Jesus explicitly says there that the church is to practice church discipline. Over and over again, the Bible also uses the words such as rebuke and exhort and admonish and warn and encourage. Why? To protect and to correct the church when there are sins within the body of Christ or the potential sin. And that the church is not to ignore these things or to forget about these things. And when Jesus tells the church to remove the unrepentant person, they are to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, as a sinner who needs to repent and come to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul tells the church in Corinth to remove the wickedly sinful man who had been boasting in their sin and whom they have been tolerating from their church. He said, remove that man. That's church discipline. Those are all pictures in the Bible of church discipline so that the name of Jesus is protected and preserved and people are loved. Now, why is this important? Why are these things important? Well, first, church discipline and church membership is good for others. 
Church membership is how the world, as we said, is how the world knows who represents Jesus and who speaks for Jesus. A clear mark of distinction. It's the church's It's the church saying to the world, look at this person. They represent Jesus. Look at this person. They are imaging Jesus. And we know, not perfectly, of course, but we believe they represent him. And they could tell you how you can know Jesus. This is good for the world. It's good for the world. Second, it's good for our own souls. Think about this with me. The church is a gift given to us by the Lord. The church has been given to us and to other people who will love and serve and pray and care for you in ways that the world will not. Think about all the imperatives in the New Testament for Christians to love one another, to exhort one another, to correct one another, to stir one another in godliness, to submit to one another, to encourage one another, to serve one another in so many ways. And in every one of those, they are meant to be lived out in the church by a group of people who are committed to one another. So can you see this for your own good? Otherwise, who is really responsible for you? Who's going to encourage you and to exhort you? Who's going to be patient with you in your fear and doubt? Who's going to correct you? Is it every Christian everywhere? Are you just going to show up to Three Tree and magically some Christian's going to show up to you and say, you need some encouragement, brother. (laughs) Sister, you look like you're in sin. It's in the church. It's in the church where you are faithfully committed and they are faithfully committed to you. They will tell you the truth even when you don't want to see it or when you don't want to hear it. And that is loving. One of my lines that I like to say is, what is it? A a true friend stabs you in the face, not in the back. They're going to tell you the truth. Hopefully not as violently. When I'm driving sometimes, my wife's sitting in the front seat. You know, sometimes my mind wanders. And I'm not always seeing everything around me because I'm thinking about who knows what or maybe I'm just trying to zone out Calvin and Ezekiel and the girls in the back. And all of a sudden, there's these brake lights in front of me. The person in front of me slams on their brakes. And I may not notice them at first. And my wife says, Ben, brakes. She warns me. 
You know, as a man, I don't like that. <laughs> Number one, and I don't tell her this, but she now knows, it kind of scares me because she startles me because I'm over thinking about toning out and I'm thinking about who knows what, you know. And all of a sudden it's like, brakes, stop. And it scares me, so it startles me, and that scared and startling makes me angry. And the reality is, is this, is actually my pride had been wounded. Because I am, I'm the driver, right? I know what I'm doing. I'm in control of this car. My pride, though, is wounded. And I have to admit, and I admit it when I hit those brakes instantly. That's admitting I wasn't paying attention. And I hit those brakes because she corrected me, even though my pride was wounded. But think about how much worse the, con the consequences would have been if I did not have ears to hear or she didn't even warn me. I mean, vans we would have went through. <laughs> God has given to us in our church people to say, stop! Brakes! Watch out! Someone's stepping out on the road! Don't yell squirrel, because I'm running that sucker over. <laughs> I don't swerve for squirrels. Deer I do. Squirrels, they're toast. Possums depends if I'm in the suburban. So it's good for us, isn't it? The third, it's good for leaders. Hebrews 13, 17, we just read it. It's quite sobering for me as an elder, as I know it's right there for other elders, that we will have to give an account to the Lord of how we shepherd you. But if you are not a member, if you're not a member of the church, number one, I ain't responsible. I don't know if that's right language or not. I'm not. But I want to ask you, who is responsible for you? Don't you want that kind of guidance over your life, that kind of oversight over your life who will be responsible and care and love you and serve you and put the right people in your life to, to help you? That's why church membership is this important. Why is church discipline important? Well, let me boldly say this, that if a person is in Christ, then church discipline is important. Because we all know sin has a hardening and deceitful effect on us. So we need other church members to love us and show us the blind spots, to point out the brake lights in front of us, to confront us in our sin that we would repent. We are not to be the sin police, sniffing out everyone nitpicking every little thing, but church discipline is reserved for those things that are outward, those things that are serious, those things that are unrepented of. But it's not loving or honoring to the Lord when the church neglects sin or flat out neglects it. Brothers and sisters, I have seen that. I have experienced that. And it never works out. It's always there. And it festers and gets worse 
and worse and worse. Ignoring sin is not loving. And it will have its full effect on the whole body of Christ. So love is what compels us to correct someone else. The aim of discipline is always to do spiritual good to the other person, even at your own expense. And if you are a Christian, isn't this what you really want? Dying to self. Because we know, you should know, that sin is really terrible. And sin destroys lives. So we want other people to pursue, to pursue you, even if you go adrift in another direction. And can you see and understand that this is God's kindness towards you in the kind of care and love for the church? Think about how counterculture this really is. Yes, many will hate it. This is hateful. This is judgmental. Love is love, but that's not love. But doesn't this show the love of God in the gospel to each other? That we're humble enough to receive, to repent, to confess our sins and come to Christ. To be pursued by a greater love. Last question. What do we do about it? And this is simple. If you've ever had a conversation about church membership or discipline with someone who claims to be a Christian but refuses, ignores, or neglects church, church membership, then lovingly tell them to join a church or stop calling themselves a Christian. It's love. Church membership is vital and important to each of our spiritual health. We are meant to live within the church and the body of Christ. Now, I'm not saying everyone should join our church because it may sound like I'm just propping us up here so that we would increase our numbers and blah, 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 blah. But as you can see, a sermon on church membership and especially church discipline doesn't really attract the masses, does it? Let me ask you this, however. Have you been matured and have you flourished at all over these years, year, or however long it's been? or how many years you've been a church member somewhere else or whatnot, that you have flourished under biblical church membership? Could you have done that just as an attender? Could you have done that with just a podcast and a cup of coffee in your Bible or YouTube? Hasn't your membership here been meaningful and vital to your maturity? So I know I'm preaching to the choir because most of us here, we are church members. We have signed the covenant. So what can I say this morning to you to encourage you about church membership? In a world where people are more disconnected from real, meaningful relationships, we must always take seriously more our membership here. Don't grow weary in your membership. 
that means love and care for one another, who are your brothers and sisters in Christ, to whom he has saved and called out and made into his family. Participate in all that you can. Exercise your loving care and oversight for one another. Participate in the Lord's Supper together. Give robust amens when we read our covenant next Sunday. Also, continue to get to know one another as much as possible. Study the Bible together. Read good books together. Eat together. Play golf together. Go hunting together. Go fishing together. Pray with one another and pray for one another. Recall each member by name. Make it a goal to pray for each member at least once a month. And lastly, encourage those who are not members to become members. A lot of people are skeptical about membership, and frankly, in many ways, I do not blame them. Unfortunately, church membership is mostly meaningless in so many congregations, or some people have experienced the abuse of the authority of, of the membership, or, the, or leaders, or pastors, or elders. But we could have a chance to redeem what something God has given to us as a gift to each Christian. Brothers and sisters, I hope, I hope that this church has been a gift to you. This membership has been a gift to you. One another has been a a complete joy to you. It's not always pretty, I get it. It's not always lovely, we're not always kind, we're not always there, but I hope that it has been a gift, a gift from the Lord. Who is the church? It's us, the people of God, the redeemed by Christ, united in him, and united together in church membership. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for this great truth from your word to be church members and to practice church discipline. Father, would you help us to continually see the grace and mercy and kindness from you that you have given to us in your church, that through your people we see and feel your loving hand. And we feel and we hear your care and your love through your people. Thank you for calling us out. Thank you for calling us to be your people. And would you help us to be faithful with your word, faithful together with your word, and faithful to proclaim your word to this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.